Hey everyone, welcome back to the Pop Anime Comics Lounge where I have with me the 25-year wrestling veteran and the founder, owner, and head trainer at Jakara slash The Wrestling Factory, Mike Quackenbush. So thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. Now, I am super stoked because you have done everything and I want to talk a lot about Jakara, but before we dive into Jakara, I do want to talk a little about who you are and I think the perfect place to start is with your training as you were trained by Ace Starling and Reckless Youth and I think a a little bit later, Sky Dre. That's kind of true. So when I first started out in wrestling, I just kind of snuck in the back door when nobody was watching. And I really wasn't anything other than a backyard wrestler with a good alibi. So for the first three years, I'm just kind of out there making a mess of everything because I don't know what I'm doing. But then eventually Ace Darling took a shine to me and kind of said, clearly you have some potential, but you need guidance. And so Ace took me under his wing and just out of the goodness of his heart, showed me the ropes, taught me how not to kill people. You know, the essentials of professional wrestling. But at some point, someone somewhere must have found a source and put it on my Wikipedia page that Reckless Youth trained me, when in reality, I've been wrestling longer than Tom. Reckless Youth and I spent a lot of hours together traveling the highways and byways, and I can't say I didn't learn anything from Tom. That's not the case. But did Tom train me? Absolutely not. And then sometime later, I would say it was 2003, I got to spend an enormous amount of time learning from someone who speaks a unique dialect of Lucha Libre that's called Yave style, Jorge Rivera, who, when he wrestled under his mask, was called Skyda, although so to us ignorant Americans, when we look at it, it probably should be pronounced Skade. Yeah, we're going to pronounce it Skade because I am not in the ethnicity or very good at Spanish or Lucha Libre language at all. So I apologize to him if he ever comes and finds me and attempts to hurt me. <laughs> I feel 100% certain Jorge has no idea what a podcast is. And that's good to know because now I feel a lot safer and I'm very <laughs> curious since Ace trained you, what was that like? And how was it broken up between the physical side? Because you were sort of the backyard wrestler before he was training you. And how was the psychological elements introduced to you into wrestling? I would say it was all virtually on-the-job style training. I don't know if you've ever seen one of the first books that was ever put out about professional wrestling was called I Was a Teenage Professional Wrestler. I believe it's by Mark Lewin. Have you ever heard of this book? I have not, but now I'm curious. It came out decades ago. It was the first thing out there in the public sphere that kind of chronicled the life of a journeyman wrestler. And he talked about how after they made up their mind that he was tough enough to do the job, everything he learned was in the ring when he was in front of the paying customers, which is a daunting way to learn. It's really not at all how things are done anymore. So it's a fascinating look into what was it like in a post-World War II wrestling era. Similarly with Ace, a lot of it was just on-the-job type stuff. We would have a match and then we would kind of sit down and pick it apart. And he would say, why did you do this here? What do you think about this? Or the next time you hear the crowd doing that, what you really need to do is this sort of thing to keep it going, because what you did by doing this was killed their interest. You took the tension away. So it wasn't as if there was a school that we went to, and Ace did train at a school. He trained under Larry Sharp at the Monster Factory, same place that produced Bam Bam Bigelow. So Ace had gone through a formal curriculum where I never did. I just kind of learned on the job. When I made the mistakes, I screwed up huge, and my mentors would scream at me afterwards on the whole ride home. That's just how it went. 
And speaking about on-the-job training, and I think this is where Ace and even Reckless Youth come in, because you wrestled them in your first two, three years extensively in places like Pennsylvania Championship Wrestling and International Pro Wrestling and Steel Wrestling. What was that like to face them? And there were some titles on the line involving those matches. And what was it like with Ace who trained you and then just riding the road with Reckless Youth and really developing that professional as well as friendship levels in wrestling? Ace is just a very warm and gregarious guy. He's not in wrestling anymore. He had a terrible knee injury a couple years back, and then I think he tried to come back from it and realized it's just not the same, and I think he hung it up. I wish that we stayed in touch. If I wanted to reach out to him this afternoon, I don't know where I'd even begin to try and hunt Ace down. He's a family man with a real job, like in the corporate sector now. But Ace was a very warm and gregarious guy. He was always the life of any party. It didn't matter what we did. If we all went out to Denny's together after the show, like Ace was always the center of attention. He always had the funniest stories. He was always the first one to be willing to make himself look like a jackass to get a laugh out of the group. I felt like I was in good hands with him. He was also very well respected by all the promoters that we worked for. At the time, and this kind of like predates the explosion of Stone Cold Steve Austin, before that starts to happen, the WWF used to allow third-party bookings. So sometimes you would be at an indie show and there's Jeff Jarrett defending the Intercontinental Championship, which in this day and age, you do see a little bit of that cross-pollination happening every once and again, right? Sometimes the NXT talent ends up out on the independent circuit, but it would really be something if you saw Dolph Ziggler out on the independent circuit, I suppose. But that was quite common when I was breaking in in the 90s. Some of the earliest shows I'm on the smoking guns, I'd watch them that morning on WWF superstars and I'd be on a show with them that night. So whenever these guys would come in, Smoking Guns, Jeff Jarrett, who else? The Heavenly Bodies, those types of guys. Whenever they would come in, Ace is the guy who would get picked to work with them. The promoters trusted him enough to be in there with world-class talent. So I always felt like I was in very good hands with him. He was a little older than I was, so we had that separation. Like, the music I listened to was not the music he listened to. The TV shows I grew up watching were not the TV shows he grew up watching. Whereas Reckless and I were very close in age. So we had all those kind of, like, shared experiences. You know, the pay-per-views that we'd obsessed over were identical, whereas some of the stuff that had captured Ace's imagination was from before I even became a fan. So in that way, in the weird familial sense of wrestling, Ace was closer to my wrestling dad, whereas Tom was closer to my wrestling brother. And so what was it like having both of those inputs and influences very early on where you have somebody to relate to and you have almost somebody as patriarchal, really kind of giving you some more history and providing you what came before? I probably would have just continued to go nowhere without them. From 1994 to 1996, I'm really just in all these bottom-of-the-barrel independent companies, and that's exactly where I belonged. As I said, I was a backyard wrestler with an alibi and very little other than that. Every once and again, I could have an acceptable match, but if I did, it wasn't because I was so skillful. It was because I got lucky. And I probably would have just remained there, circling around the drain eternally, unless somebody who really knew what they were doing took an interest in me. And I think it was between the fact that Ace and I got along very well, and in the ring, Reckless and I had great chemistry, started to get me noticed in more reputable places so that I could go to work for more reputable promoters. In fact, the guy who probably gave me the most opportunity when I was little other than a backyard wrestler with an alibi ultimately was the subject of a decades-long FBI sting. He was a serial con man. You know, I was really scraping the bottom there in those early couple years before I started to fall in with the right people who said, you're not going to associate with these guys anymore. You're coming with us and speaking about getting out of the bottom of the barrel eventually you were in those promotions that i mentioned as well as a few others 
including East Coast Wrestling Alliance, Future Wrestling Alliance, Hardway Wrestling, and a few matches in MCW, which is another respectable school like Chikara. And it's probably one of the top four or five schools that is known globally at this point. And you got to wrestle people like Christian York, Joey Mercury, Devon Storm, Loki, Blind Rage, and we can go on here. But those are a few that I want to mention because people know who they are. What was that like really getting out of the bottom of the barrel and getting to wrestle great people really starting in 1996 all the way up to 2001? Well, uh, Devin Storm, the longtime tag partner of Ace Darling, he was a factor in my career for a long time. If you got in a car with Ace, Devin was riding shotgun. You know, they went together like peanut butter and jelly. In fact, their most high-profile matches, like wrestling Nash and Hall on WCW Monday Nitro, the heights of their career, I think, are together, even though Devin goes on to be Crowbar and does have a little bit of a singles run later on. Ace and Devin kind of go together like peanut butter and jelly. And again, both of them are a couple years older than me. But then that next wave of indie guys come in underneath Reckless and I. That's Christian and Joey. And then another wave comes in underneath them, and that's Homicide, Low Key. So... It was a strange thing given by that point, you know, I had a handful of years experience, although a lot of that experience was negligible. And some of these guys who came in with very good training, like a Joey Matthews, who's later Joey Mercury, even though they were younger than me and had less experience, they were far better trained than I was. They'd gone through a formal curriculum and come out the other side. It's also a period that really starts to transform the independence. As the U.S. scene leaves the territories behind and the final couple territories are dying out, like AWA hangs on into the 90s, world class down in Texas hangs on to the 90s. I really think the modern independent movement begins when Shane Douglas throws down that NWA belt and declares himself the extreme championship wrestling champion. So true independent wrestling in the United States, as I see it, only really begins in the mid-90s. So we spend the balance of the 90s just starting to figure out what our identity is. Is our identity dictated by what third-party WWF guys are on top and headlining? Is that what it's about? Or do we have a style that's all our own? And then that style does start to emerge, I think, before you get to like a fairly significant event, if you know you're independent wrestling, is break the barrier. By the time you get to break the barrier, there really is an independent flavor that's different than what you're seeing on the main stages. It's kind of like that moment when you discover, hey, you know what? All the way down here at the end of the dial, there's this college radio station playing all these indie rock bands that I've never heard on Top 40 radio. And this is interesting because WCW was collapsing and WWE or WWF at the time is what we should call it, later became WWE, kind of became the top dog and the only major promotion and kind of destroyed the territories really starting in 2000, 2001, obviously Monday Night Wars. And that's kind of sort of where Chikara came out of. How did that all happen? What was the mentality? Because Chikara is obviously very indie and that started in 2002. And so how is that formulated? Because that's kind of what you were saying. The modern indies were, what, seven years old at that point? Right. Yeah. You know, I think once AWA and world class are officially gone, there are no territories left. And the independent circuit has to discover what that means when you can't, oh, go to Florida for six months and then get transferred to Oregon. And then you do a spot there and then you end up going to the Texas circuit for a while. That's not how it worked anymore. And of course, you know, the Internet changes everything as well. But the most significant thing historically is that WCW and ECW were gobbled up by the WWE machine in 2001. And this vacuum begins to occur where there have been these really bright, shining stars. Now there's a vacuum. And of course, nature abhors a vacuum. So 
there's a bunch of us that just think about, well, how do we fill this void? And that period of time from when WCW and ECW get consumed and the 18 to 24 months that follow are probably the most important in the history of independent wrestling, the Shane Douglas moment aside, because that's where Ring of Honor happens. That's where NWA TNA forms. And that's where Chikara comes from. There's this renaissance, so to speak, in independent wrestling as there's a path cleared. Now there's just the number one. There isn't like a number two and a number three like there had been. And there are some people that want to pretend that they were in that role, right? I bet you if you gave XPW the chance to write wrestling history, they would tell you that they were the number two back in this era. With the benefit of hindsight, we all know that to be laughable. If you let the guys that produced MTV's Wrestling Society X write the wrestling history books, I bet you they would tell you they were number three back in that era. And we know that to be laughable as well. So what's great about there not being that anymore is there's a freedom to just go out there and make it however you want to make it. And the way that we wanted to make it was like as an answer to what we were experiencing everywhere we went. Reckless Youth and I, especially in 1998 and 1999, might have been two of the hardest traveling independent wrestlers in the world. So we got to see how it was done here and there and everywhere. And a lot of the places we went, we found it dull. It was very boring. Going to work became monotonous. This thing that we used to be passionate about was just turning into a job. And we thought, how can we make this cool again? How can we make this fun again? What are we not seeing out there? And what we were seeing were two main things. Number one, everyone was dying to be named the next ECW. And in order to be that for a lot of them, it meant they were going to try to push the envelope toward more R-rated content. It was going to be sexier. It was going to be a little more vulgar. It was going to be a little more edgy. It was going to be a little more adult. Everybody wanted to be the next ECW. And if you weren't in that bag, you were in the bag where you were basically diet WWF. You were never going to have their stars. You were never going to have the money to do their production values, but you were trying really hard basically to make WWF, but in your hometown. And both of these ideas we just thought were really stale. So Chikara is basically an answer to that. It's what we saw when we were traveling really hard for those couple of years. It was what we saw when the vacuum starts to occur in the absence of WCW and ECW. And in part, it's an answer to what Tom went through during his year and a half as a developmental talent for the World Wrestling Federation. What was his experience like there actually being in the machine? And then how did he come out the other side? And those are the things that made Chikara into what it is. And to talk about Chikara, because Chikara is very interesting, because one of the building blocks of Chikara is that you don't teach one wrestling style, and you started out as a wrestling school before even a promotion. So mm -hmm. how did that come about, and what was the mentality? I think you alluded to it, but when was that idea formed as one of the stable components of Chikara? Well, I'd always been fascinated by Mexican and Japanese wrestling styles because they are different languages. American pro wrestling is its own language, and there are people who speak it beautifully. And by that, you know, I mean, of course, it's a physical language, not a verbal one. I think you follow what I'm saying here. And lucha is its own language, and pro wrest is its own language. And Tom came back from his developmental stint, having spent a lot of time training with William Regal, who taught him some of the classic British style from the world of sport era. That, too, is its own language. And we thought, why are we not seeing this? This variety is really important. And so that just kind of became our mission statement when we opened the Wrestle Factory. We were going to teach it all. When I was first starting out in the Pittsburgh scene, like I said, I would just kind of show up somewhere. I had a good alibi. They'd let me in the door. There was a guy I used to train with. His name was Randy. And you turn up at this derelict mall in the outskirts of Pittsburgh. And in the middle of the mall where the food court had once been, they'd set up a wrestling ring. And if you handed the guy at the door 50 bucks, you could get in. And somebody named Randy would attempt to teach you wrestling for a while. 
And I remember the disdain with which he would refer to Lucka Libra. Randy hated foreign styles of wrestling. He would say they were wrong. Don't do that Lucka Libra stuff here. That's wrong. Those Mexicans do it wrong. I'm going to teach you how to do it right. And of course, what doing it right often meant if you trained with Randy was all he would do was beat you up. He would beat you up, take your money, send you home and hope you came back the next week. And of course, because I was so stupid, that's exactly what I would do. I would somehow find another 50 bucks and show up and he would chop my chest until I was bleeding and then he would send me home again. And when that wasn't enough to send me away, he would stretch me or just beat me up in other ways. So I had a real resentment for that ignorant point of view that wrestling could be done wrong, that certain styles weren't correct. Can you imagine in 2000? 19, how ignorant you would sound if you said to somebody, don't speak Spanish here, Spanish is wrong. It's just an exceptionally ignorant point of view. So the Wrestle Factory, of course, took an opposite point of view. And to talk about that, because you and Reckless Youth were pretty much wrestling for six, seven years at this point. Both of you individually were wrestling for six, seven years. So what was it like teaching your first class? And I'm just going to rattle some names off. Ultramantis was in there, Mr. Zero, Dragonfly, Hollow Wicked, and Icarus. And Mm -hmm. Hollow Wicked and Icarus have been with you in Chikara for almost 20 years at this point. So what was it like really teaching that first class and introducing other styles and teaching wrestling broadly versus very narrow-mindedly? In the beginning, I was a rotten teacher. I don't think I appreciated how much work goes into being a very good teacher, but I figured it out pretty darn fast because in the beginning I was wretched. And then we're only, I don't know, eight months into Chikara or whatever, the Wrestle Factory anyway, when Tom decided to resign from the company. And that kind of begins his exit strategy from professional wrestling. And he's a very accomplished accountant outside of pro wrestling. He's made a great career for himself. He has a big, lovely family. He's doing great. But Tom, at that point, just decided to hand the keys and the books to me and say, Mike, I'm out of here. And from that moment on, I realized I had better become a good teacher really quick because I've got all these kids out in that other room that are counting on me to get them over the finish line. It was a real wake up call. And the truth is, it took me a couple of years to become a very good teacher. It was a long process. I had to screw up a whole lot before I got good at any of it. But I'm thankful for those guys who stuck it out with me. I think it was day two of training under Reckless for the second wave of Wrestle Factory students that included guys like Eddie Kingston and Jigsaw when Tom basically handed in the keys and the books. So some of them were just brand spanking new. They'd barely learned Tom's name and he was leaving. And he was a far bigger star than I was. In the 90s and the early 00s, Reckless Youth was quintuple the star that I was. It's weird now when I talk to people about him, they're like, yeah, I never heard of Reckless Youth. And I think, how is that possible? For about a decade, he was the gold standard in American independent wrestling. And beneath him were guys like me, Chris Daniels, Mike Modest. All of us were kind of of that same class of independent wrestlers. We all started at roughly the same time. We're all roughly the same age. Tom was a bigger star than the three of us combined. So I'm always left a bit aghast when people are like, yeah, I've never seen a Reckless Youth match. I've never really heard of him. And I don't know if it's because the majority of his body of work just predates the ubiquity of the internet or what it is, but Tom is sorely underappreciated. Was he like a perfect teacher, great role model and five-star wrestler all the time? No, he was a guy like you and me. But he really made a huge difference. He left a lasting influence and impact. And there were a lot of years there after he left Chikara and the Wrestle Factory where I just thought, I don't know how I'm supposed to do this without him. And speaking about that, and there was a bit of a gap when Eddie Kingston, who was on the podcast, and Jigsaw came in. 
And both those guys have gone on and done amazing things. But one of the people that kind of stepped up was Chris Hero. And mm-hmm. Chris Hero has a Shakespearean approach to wrestling. And anybody who has broken wrestling down on a psychological level understands what that means. And so what was that like, him coming in and him really stepping up and him becoming a co-trainer and really helping out and having people like Cesaro in there as well, who took over for Chris Hero when he left? Well, after about two years of doing it all by myself, and I think we'd maybe pushed out between 12 and 16 students in that period of time, I thought, I need backup. And so I was out touring around the Midwest when I'd come across Chris. And of course, I knew Chris's reputation. He'd been on the very first Chikara show. We'd crossed paths numerous times, and I had a great respect for his mind. And so I had just kind of rolled it out on the table. I think at the time he was living in Dayton, Ohio. I said, how would you feel about moving to Philadelphia? How's that strike you? And he did take some time to think about it. I brought it up at the beginning of whatever tour he and I were on. And by the end of the tour, he said, I'll do it. And that was a great relief to me. And Chris, too, kind of went through a similar process. Like in the beginning, he was not a very good teacher, but he did have an impressive body of work, a great resume, and his performances kind of spoke for themselves. And I think like all of us do when we first learn how to train people, you kind of go through that process of learning. This is how it's got to be done. Like This just doesn't work. And this does. And that was great. On my first tour of Europe, I stayed with Claudio Castagnoli. He was the guy who hosted me while I was over there. So he and I became bosom buddies very quickly. And he came over once to the States and wrestled for Chikara in one of our tournaments. And as he was leaving, I remember saying to Claudio, I said, you ever think about just relocating, training with us full time? You're only going to go so far being in Switzerland and Germany. If you really want to see your career go where you want it to go, you're going to have to consider relocating here to the United States. When I said that to him back in 2003, it was true at that time. Is that still true? true today, far less so. But Claudio went through the long process of getting a green card. He moved to the United States. I believe he has dual citizenship between the U.S. and Switzerland to this day, and then began training with me full time at the Wrestle Factory. There's probably nobody that I spent more time, more just total number of hours in a ring training than Claudio Castagnoli. So watching him transform into Cesaro and becoming one of the biggest stars in the world, if not the most underrated professional wrestler of the last 10 years, has been very validating. Watching his journey and kind of cheering him along from the sidelines has been great. And what is that like for you? Because you've turned out a lot of people. We're going to talk about some of them. Drew Gulak is another one, and I'm disappointed that his cruiserweight title run is over, but that's a different discussion completely. But what does that mean for you, considering that so many people you have trained have become successful? Well, it's very edifying, of course, and I take a great deal of pride. I could say that about pretty much everybody I train, I think. I take a great deal of pride. When they succeed at even greater levels, that's very validating that what we do works. There are times where you just got to make it up as you go. And then you kind of wonder, can I get away with this? It's called imposter syndrome. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but it's that feeling that everyone in the room is about to figure out that you don't really know what you're doing. And in wrestling, a lot of times that's what you're doing, right? You're making it up as you go and you're just hoping that you're getting it right. And then to see so many of my students succeed in the biggest ways possible, I guess it makes me feel one of two ways. One, it makes me feel like, ha ha, I fooled them all. Or like, hey, I guess this really does work. And speaking about things working, the wrestling factory in Chikara has changed. Cesaro took over for Chris Hero. And then in 2013, obviously Cesaro left, went to NXT or what predated NXT and WWE's factory, and then became one of the biggest superstars in the world. And in 2013, 
you sort of reformatted Chikara as there was a big growth of wrestling. And I view really 2010, 2011, 2012 as the revival of people getting interested in wrestling. And one of the things that happened with you is that you enlisted Ophidian, Hollow Wicked, Fire Ant, Sony DeFarge, and Juan Francisco de Coronado, or America, depending on what he's sporting and waving what flag, and Travis Huckabee to be full staff at the Wrestling Factory. How did this all come about, and what was this change really inspired by? Well, I could say it was inspired by the fact that I took a real interest in improv. So there's a period of three years where I'm not wrestling very often, and it's because I'd shattered my right leg in Secaucus, New Jersey. I was wrestling what I imagined would be my last match. I didn't imagine I was going to get injured in that match. I'm teaming with my hero, Jushin Liger, and I moonsaulted off the top turnbuckle out to the floor, and my right leg landed exactly lined up with the guardrail. So the whole right leg of mine just runs straight down the metal barrier and shatters my leg. And what follows is a period of about three years where even walking is somewhat difficult. I walk with a cane for most of those three years. And in my mind, my active wrestling career is over. I've got to start looking at what else I'm going to be doing. How can I be an ambassador for the art form that I love? How can I better prepare the next generation to avoid the mistakes that I made? All that kind of stuff. It's the wrestling midlife crisis. But I still love performing. And so I thought, well, I need a different outlet for this. So I became really involved in the improv scene in Philadelphia. Took a lot of workshops. I took a lot of classes. Got onto an improv team. We would rehearse together all the time. And I learned that culture. I learned everything about how that worked. I read all the books I could read about improv. I listened to all the podcasts I could listen to about improv. And I started to understand how improv training differs from wrestling training. And that caused me to overhaul the entire curriculum and training system at the Wrestle Factory. But that overhaul meant I needed more hands. If we were going to start to offer, instead of only training two or three nights a week, that we would offer 10 classes a week at all different ability levels so that the beginners were only in with the beginners till they mastered certain fundamentals. That the advanced people were kind of isolated by themselves, except in those environments where it was okay to mix them in with intermediates. To have that number of classes either meant my whole life was going to be at the Wrestle Factory, which just wasn't a real thing, or I was going to need more staffing. I was going to need people that I could trust to train the beginners, people I could trust to train the intermediates, and really polished pros that I could trust to train the advanced level players and get them ready to take the stage. And so I just started to identify people on my own team and say, hey, have you ever thought about this? Do you think you could come and do that? And then one by one, Hollowicked said, yeah. Give me that responsibility. And Fire Ant said, I can do this. And Juan said, I'll do that. And the team just kind of came together that way. And one of the things I want to talk about training really, really efficiently, because Jakara has a very unique system. I think you just mentioned it. And Jakara has a very clean system of how training is. So how was that all developed? Because there is a core class. There is a class above that. There's a secondary class above that. There's an advanced class. And how did all that come about? And how did you go about developing it? And what was the process and really the mentality of building out those 10 classes that provide all different sets of training that allow wrestlers to do different things, per se? Well, it's all just stolen outright from what I observed in improv. If you went to the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, you know, they have two in New York and one in Los Angeles, and you wanted to take an improv class, you would start in Beginner 101, and you would take five, eight, ten classes. And if you master those techniques, then they say, you're ready for Beginner 201. And if you don't master those fundamental techniques, guess what? You got to pay and take 101 again till you master it. And there is something very clean and orderly about that system. What I like about that is this removal of 
the idea that you are passing or failing at wrestling, which just isn't real. You've either mastered the techniques and you're ready for a new challenge, or you haven't. That's all there is to it. It doesn't mean these people pass and you over here are a failure. I don't like the way that affects my students' mentality, and we just don't use those terms inside the four walls of the Wrestle Factory. There is no pass or fail. So in theory, right, if you were to stay on that tiered side of our curriculum, you'd take Beginner 101, and then you'd take 201, then you'd take 301, then you'd take 401, or there is our core curriculum, which is a completely separate year-round track, which is kind of like the deep end of the pool. That's for the people who say, coach, throw me in and I'm going to learn to swim while I'm flailing around in the water because I appreciate those kind of immersive sink or swim environments. Great. Get in. And people who do core curriculum can train up to five nights a week with us. That's probably all the more anybody should have to put up with. Whereas tiered curriculum, beginner 101, 201, 301, is like the shallow end of the pool. You want to stick your toes in a little bit. Do I like the temperature of this pool? Do I want to try and get in and swim around here in the shallow end before I swim out there to the deep end? And having those options has really caused the school to explode. There were eras where we had one trainee, two trainees. You didn't have enough of them to put the ring up. Right now, we have close to 50 trainees at the Wrestle Factory. We have a really robust culture around the place. That outright theft of, I don't know if it was the Upright Citizens Brigade, something tells me other improv houses developed it before, and whether it was the Annoyance Theater in Chicago or I.O. or Second City going all the way back. Think about Del Close and the originators of improv comedy. I don't know where that system came from, but I'm glad we stole it. And now I want to jump, and I alluded to it, but you've trained a bunch of people, and I'm going to just name some of them. Ophidian, who is very well recognized as he's the leader of a bad guy faction currently, and he also just won King of Trios with his team. You trained most of the colony, Eric Cannon, Drew Gulak, Eddie Kingston, Jigsaw, Orange Cassidy, which people know, Davey Vega, who's big in St. Louis Anarchy, Dasher Hatfield, to name a few. So what is that like? Because those are some really big names. And we mentioned this a little bit before, but how do you feel about their success and how it reflects upon you and how they've represented Jakara very successfully? Well, you know, there are people that have trained kind of within the Chikara system, so to speak. I think if you start and end your training, or I shouldn't say end your training, that's false. Training really never ends. But if you pass all the way through our entire curriculum at the Wrestle Factory, like I kind of think of you as being within the Chikara system, like all the members of the colony, like Eddie Kingston, like Cesaro, like Drew Gulak. And there are people I've trained outside of Chikara, Alistair Black or Alexa Bliss or blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't matter, you know, whether I've trained you for a couple of months, I trained you for a couple of years or Hollow Wicked Nicarus are a great example. These are guys I see in class and I have for the last 17 plus years. You'd be hard pressed to get me to name a student of mine that I don't take a lot of pride in. And then there are two more. You mentioned Alexa Bliss. We're going to table for one second. And the other one I want to talk about, and it's unique, is Bryce Remsburg. As he's a referee. And when he first came in, you guys didn't have a valet or referee system. So what was that like training him? And he's arguably the biggest referee out there right now. Sure. And I would make the argument that Bryce is not just a referee. I say that for this reason, because we trained him end to end to be a wrestler. When we would have practice matches, he would wrestle complete practice matches. I think that's part of what makes him such a good referee. He understands more than just his sliver of the job. If he wanted to, he's fully trained. You could hand him a set of trunks and boots and Bryce Remsburg could go to the ring and would probably out-wrestle about half the people on your local championship wrestling company's team. So because Bryce is so adept at changing what hat he wears, he can wrestle, he can ref, he can commentate, he can produce, he's really unique 
in that a lot of times wrestlers or people in wrestling in general develop one skill set only. They only get good at being a commentator. They can't really do anything else. I'm trying to think of like an example that everybody might understand. My guess would be you could not take Michael Cole, hand him a set of trunks and boots and say, hey, I need you to headline tonight. You're going to be in there with Roman Reigns and we need it to be an acceptable main event, right? Like Michael Cole's skill set probably doesn't convert to that. I think it's because Bryce is so multi-talented is a lot of why he is as in demand today as he is. And we're going to table that because I love Bryce. Bryce is fantastic. He runs amazing seminars. If you ever get the chance to go, it's a nice plug for him right there because he's so smart about wrestling. And the other person I want to talk about, and this is somewhat of a story and you can provide as much background as necessary, is your work with Alexa Bliss. Yeah, the very first time I went down to the WWE Performance Center, which was in February of 2016, I was a bit charmed to see that it was all very familiar to me. And that's because a graduate of my program, Sarah Del Rey, is now the number two down there under her given name, Sarah Amato. So all their warm-ups and all their drills and all that stuff, it was all the stuff I had taught to her. And I just felt like I was part of the family. It was a very natural fit. At the end of the week, Sarah had kind of alley-ooped me so I could speak to the whole NXT roster. And I think perhaps they did this because a speech I had given at Ignite Philly 16, called The Art of Pro Wrestling, had recently gone viral. I imagine perhaps they thought I was going to stand up and just repeat that speech, which just isn't my thing. Even if I'm calling back a speech I've given before, I never do it the exact same way twice in a row. That feels cheesy to me. And so I stood up and I talked about what I believe about professional wrestling. And I think my best work when I'm speaking publicly is when I allow the feelings behind what I say to manifest themselves. When I do that, sometimes it makes those feelings manifest in the people listening. And I can tell their eyes will water up. I can tell it's connecting with them. And I knew on that particular day that I'd kind of made a lasting connection with Alexa Bliss. So later, when I came to do more regular work for the WWE's Performance Center, and I would be down there every month, we would just bump into each other at the Performance Center. And she'd say, oh, you're here again. What's your schedule like? And I'd say, well, I have a class then and a class here. And she said, well, in between those classes, could we work together in the ring? And I want you to know that generally speaking, if Alexa Bliss ever comes up to you and says, hey, could we work together in the ring? The answer you're going to give is yes. So here and there, we would just get in the ring together and work on ideas that interested her or parts of her game that she thought needed improvement. And I came to have enormous respect for her her work ethic. To give you an example of what Alexa's schedule's like, back in the month of June, so just earlier in the summer, she was at her house, home, the whole month, less than 42 hours. She is on the road constantly. And because she has a very telegenic appearance, she's very magnetic and charismatic, the WWE wants her out there doing all kinds of personal appearances. So when somebody had to go to the Country Music Awards, they sent Alexa Bliss. So while all the other members of the roster got to have a day off, they could go home, clean their gear, catch up on laundry, see their loved ones, not Alexa. She was shipped off to this awards show where they had to fit her last minute for some custom dress they made, shipped her off to have her hair and makeup done, and then stood up in front of all kinds of cameras giving 30-second sound bites for the WWE as their corporate representative. When I got a sense of what her schedule was like, that there are months where she's literally home just hours, hours, long enough to change over her bags, pet her animals, and then leave again. And then she would take some of that precious time she had at home to still come into work to 
learn more submission holds, to become a better acrobat, to whatever she wanted to work on, gave me such a deep admiration for her. And I really also wanted to like challenge her because she's such an outstanding athlete. Some of the things which to me were exceptionally complicated, I would really only have to show her once or twice and she could do them perfectly. So that's really inspiring to me too. It kind of says, well, what else can you do? If that thing which took me six months to master, you just mastered in two minutes? Well, what else can we do? And that's part of the charm of the WWE's Performance Center as a whole because they have world-class athletes, right? They've got ex-NFL guys, ex-NBA guys. When NASA was considering putting a human on Mars, the guy who had been picked to go to Mars now wrestles for NXT. They have the top people on the planet in their system. So that really motivates me to want to work harder. And I just feel very fortunate that, you know, they have new guest coaches every week. There's two new ones that go through the Performance Center every five days. So there's massive churn of guest coaches that go through. And so I just feel really flattered that she took a shine to the way that we worked together and that when we were together in the ring, we had good chemistry and it provided some good fun. And in a weird way, looking back on the impact that's had on me, given the fact that I've probably spent less than 12 hours in a ring with Alexa Bliss and she put out a video of of her and I training together earlier this year. This is back closer to Valentine's Day, I think. She put this out between her Twitter and her Instagram. That video of us together has been watched 3.1 million times. That is more exposure than everything else in my 26 years in professional wrestling almost certainly combined. That's staggering to me that when I inevitably pass away, chances are the thing most people will know me from is a 15 second video Alexa Bliss randomly tweeted out. But that's also the power of her reach as a superstar. And I think that's a perfect place to stop because we are pressed for somewhat time here. And we're going to have to eventually do a part two and talk about the promotion side of Chikara. But I do want to give you an opportunity to promote yourself. You got a bunch of books out there. And hopefully in a part two sometime, we'll be able to talk more in depth about that. As well as you got Chikara's wrestling school. What is your social media? And what advice do you have for people who really want to get into wrestling? Briefly. Well, if you're interested to check out the Wrestle Factory, we offer free workshops where we do what day one of training is like for free. We open it up to the public. And here's why I do that. I want people to come in and get over their fears. I want to demystify what that training is like. You can come and get in the ring with me at my Wrestle Factory, and I'm going to walk you through day one of training. We're going to do all the exercises, all the drills. I think what people walk away from with that experience is, number one, they realize maybe that dream is possible. Maybe this thing I thought I couldn't do, I can. And I think people always come away with a better understanding and respect for the challenges of the craft. So you could head to TheWrestleFactory.com. And again, that's The Wrestle Factory, not The Wrestling Factory. And there, all the information about our classes and workshop can be found. If you want to keep up with me, I'm Mike Quackenbush on Twitter. I caved into peer pressure and got an Instagram, which is home to my more oblique sense of humor. I'm MQ underscore thousand holds, T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D, thousand holds. You can check me out there, but my new YouTube project is the thing that takes up most of my time. It's called Till We Make It. It's videos for wherever you're at in your journey as a professional wrestler. If you're just starting out, I got videos for you over there. If you're deep into your career, worried about what your legacy will be when you're done, I got videos for you over there. And of course, it's 
very top secret. Wrestling fans absolutely cannot watch it. So please don't go to Till We Make It and subscribe right now and like all the videos. Please don't do that. I'd be infuriated. My latest book, Seven Keys to Becoming a Better Performer, a book for fellow pro wrestlers, is on Amazon and on Audible right now. If you're thinking of starting out in professional wrestling, I cannot emphasize this enough. And keep in mind what we talked about in the long early part of this, right, about having no training, about what it is when you don't have a reliable mentor. I am 100 percent certain I could have gone much, much further in my pro wrestling career if I'd had proper training, gone through a formal curriculum and had coaches and mentors to help me overcome all the pitfalls that you're going to go through in your early years. I don't want other people to go through that. That's why I make Till We Make It. That's why I wrote Seven Keys to Becoming a Better Performer. And that's why I make it as easy as possible to get into the world of professional wrestling at my Wrestle Factory. I think that's the best place to stop. And we're eventually going to have to do a part two of this because there's a whole other side we didn't get to. But till then, everybody, I appreciate everybody listening to this week's episode of the podcast. And we can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitch Radio, and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. And while you wait for next week's episode, you can definitely check us out at popanimecomics.com for articles relating to anime, comics, and pop culture. Give me a follow on Twitter at popanimecomics. I really need it on Twitter. You could also like my Facebook page. I need that too. That is popanimecomics. I have an Instagram. It's a lot of fun. You can check that out. That's Pop Anime Comics. I have a pro wrestling t-shirt shop. Legitly, that is the only way I am monetized. So go buy my shirt. Type in Pop Anime Comics. And it's really cool. It's an elf holding a steel chair. And she doesn't want to come to your house and have to hit you with it repeatedly until you buy my shirt. So the best way how to protect yourself and you from getting assaulted by an elf is to go buy that shirt now. And until next week, everybody, have a wonderful week.